Do you ever see the show Mythbusters? It's kind of a science meets stunt kind of show. A little bit of science, a whole lot of stunt. Um, you ladies won't have any idea what I'm talking about. Guys, have you ever thought about how many bad things happen right after somebody said, watch this? <laughs> Especially after a few Budweiser's. It's not going to end well. Well, they have one of those moments on Mythbusters because what they were going to do, they're going to fire a cannonball at a couple of trash cans full of water, and then there was a cinder block wall behind it. But I guess when they were aiming the cannon, they were a little bit off. So the cannon, cannonball missed the, the trash cans, went through the cinder block wall, went 700 yards into a subdivision, right in, blew the door off a house, bounced up the stairs, flew across the bed where people were sleeping in a room, took out about a cantaloupe-sized hole in the wall, kept going, went across a six-lane road, hit another house, tore tiles off the roof, and took out a Toyota van. Now, when I think about that, I, I think about what, what comes to mind is the way we talk today. I don't mean necessarily you and me. I'm just talking about as a culture. Because when people talk a lot of times, they don't realize What's going to happen with the words that they say? Is it, is it just, I know it's not just me. You see the same thing too. I mean, the thing about it, the, the advent of technology causes our words to go further, faster, and more unfixable than any other time in history. If you want to Google something interesting, just look at how many people have lost their jobs by a Facebook post or an Insta, something on Instagram or Snapchat, it's, it's really amazing. I mean, these are people oftentimes that are very, very bright. They went to college for years to develop their career. Oftentimes, they've been successful in their careers. But because of an ill-advised tweet or posting, they wound up losing their career. I was reading about a woman yesterday who was an emergency room nurse and had been one for seven years. And to my knowledge, had never had any problems or any, any kind of... She hadn't been written up about anything. But what had happened was a man had been hit by a train or a subway, and the, the emergency room at this point was empty, but it was just disheveled and, and messy. And she had just simply tweeted or put on Instagram, um, man meets train. And she was told by her supervisors that she no longer worked there. Now, instantly, there's a tension in my mind, and I don't know if you feel it too, because sometimes I feel like we live in a culture in this political correctness haze where victimhood is almost a cottage industry. There are people that seem like they're just looking for offense because they can have this sense of outrage that they've been offended, and the next thing you know, they're calling for someone's job. I think we do that a little too fast, don't you? I mean, someone's livelihood is not something to mess with. And, and I would have wished wiser heads would have pulled that nurse aside and made that a teaching moment. Strange, isn't it? We say we're not a judgmental culture, but we're a horrifically mean culture sometimes if someone happens to say the wrong thing. But on the other hand... 
I think part of the issue that we have with what I've just described, we're troubled with the, the, the issue that words are being thrown out so carelessly, so harmful, so toxic. And because of that, there has to be some response. So all I'm saying is I, I feel a tension. On one hand, I think with political correctness, we've gone a little too far. But yet on the other hand, I sort of understand the political correctness thing because people are saying such hurtful, harmful, mean things without thinking. And as I said, just like that cannonball, words tend to go further, faster, and they're more infixable than they've ever been. And I begin to listen to people respond to that, thinking people. And I hear people ask questions like, are we going to be able to survive as a nation? The fact that we're politically polarized, I don't know that that's ever going to change. I think the likelihood of it changing is not strong. But the question is, how can, can our nation survive the hateful way that people are talking? And then people are asking, what's this doing to relationships? You know, there's something about saying something on the internet or writing something that makes the, the psychology of it or makes the ethic of it very different than sitting across the table looking into someone's eyes. I think sometimes people rant and troll and say things on the internet that they would never say if they were sitting across the table looking to, into the eyes of the other person. And so people are asking, what's this doing to relationships? Because relationships are being irretrievably broken because of words that are said too quickly. But for me, the question that I hear people ask and the question that I have is, what's this doing to our kids? Because as adults, a lot of times we'll just say, well, it's just the way people talk to each other today. But what's all this, what's all the, what's all this toxic talk doing to our kids? Now, I realize I've already lost a whole, not maybe a whole lot of you, but I've already lost some of you. And, and here's why I've lost you. Because you're sitting out there saying something like this to yourself. Hey, Mark, it's just talk. I mean, it's not that big. It's not that big a deal. It's just talk. Well, when I was a kid growing up many years ago, we used to have a little thing that we said on the playground when somebody said something hurtful to us, and it went like this. you got to be old to know this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's probably one of the biggest false statements in the history of mankind because words do hurt. But all I'm going to do today is if I've already lost you and you say, Mark, I think you're, you're making too much out of this talk thing because it's just talk, I'm going to ask you to do something for me, not for me, but for yourself. I'm going to ask you to pull back from that a little bit and at least hear the message today and then rethink it, reevaluate it. And if you walk out of here and you say, I still think it's just talk, then great. You will have gone through a, a healthy exercise. But it could just be that talk is a little bigger than you might have thought. And so this is going to be a workshop. This is not a sermon. And it's even more freaky than that because the truth is the sermon's going to be about five minutes long. Don't go get your hopes up because the next part is the introduction's going to be about 30 minutes long. <laughs> so I'm just telling you right now, there's going to be introduction and then we're going to get to a talk. Okay, here's the question I want to ask. Does talk matter? The first answer to the question is, God's listening or reading. So whenever we say something or write something, we need to know that it isn't just between me and the person I'm writing to or talking to or just me and the people on the internet. God is listening. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2, the Bible says, Do not be quick with your mouth, or, your, or, or the sin button or the click. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Now look at this. Solomon adds, God is in heaven and you're on earth, which means this. It means that God sees more than we do. How many of you have been in a relationship or in a relationship and you got into an argument perhaps and you, you voiced 
a feeling that you were just sure was dead on right, only to find out there were facts you didn't know. And that as you learn those facts, you realize your point of view was skewed or wrong. Well, that's what Solomon is telling us. He's saying God sees everything, and we don't see much. So he's saying, hey, we need to be slow about what we say because God is watching everything. And then, of course, the obvious conclusion, let your words be few. Well, let's go to something else. The second point that I would share with you in, in response to that question, uh, do words matter? And, and based on what we just read, I want us to understand something. Our words are going to outlive us. What's significant about that is exactly backward to what we normally think. Because we sort of look at like, well, today's a new day. What I said yesterday is dead. And those words are finished. Today I'm going to say a whole bunch of new words. So the things I said yesterday and the week before and the month before and the year before, those are all forever gone. But the Bible tells us it's just the opposite. In Scripture, in Matthew chapter 12, this is Jesus talking. He said, you must give an account on judgment day of every idle word you speak. The words you say now reflect your fate then. Either you will be justified by them, by your words, or condemned by them. So the idea that I've outlived my words is exactly backward. My words are going to outlive me. Someday, in the far distant future, I hope, um, we're going to run a race here, and we're going to be finished with these bodies. They're going to put it in a box or an urn, and people are going to come, and they're going to have a memorial service. But the deal is our words are still going to be there because Scripture tells us that when we stand before God, it's going to be our words that are going to face us. Kind of scary, isn't it? Well, let me take a third thing that all this leads us to understand about the importance of our words. The moment we speak, we take ownership. Whenever something comes out of my mouth, it doesn't matter who told me what. It doesn't matter what I've read, what some expert has said. The moment a word comes out of my mouth, I own it. And this is what should make us think twice about repeating gossip, repeating something negative about something, someone that could bear uh, painfully on someone else's life. And Because here's the deal. Since God is listening and our words are going to outlive us, it will do no good to say, God, I was told this, and I believe the person who told me. God's like, I'm sorry, the moment it came out of your mouth, you owned it. When I was a kid, they don't do this as much anymore, but when I was a kid, I used to go shopping with my parents, and there were breakable things. There used to be signs up on the wall that said, you break it, you own it. And my parents used to point that out to me. Every time I would go into a store, they would say, if you break it, I've got to pay for it, and it's coming out of your allowance. Basically, that's what God is saying, is the moment we say it, we own it. I should be careful about saying this because you'll put two and two together and figure out who I'm talking about, but I guess it really doesn't matter that much. I was reading um, a book written by a cable TV show host on history, and um, he was writing about a character. The only thing was I'd read about 10 or 12 books on that character already, plus I lived through um, the time he was president. And as I read through this book, I kept noticing Error. Some of, one of them that was glaring to me was very tiny, but anybody who was reading or watching news in 85 or 87 would know this is a glaring error. Later on, when this talk show host was confronted with the fact that there were errors in his book, he said, well, everything in my book is double-sourced. You know, I understood something for the first time. If two people tell the same stupid story, it can be double-sourced and it can still be wrong. <laughs> so, Let's think about that. God is listening. God is watching. Our words are going to outlive us. And it doesn't matter who told us what. The moment it comes out of our mouth, we own it. That's the way it is with that author. 
Maybe, maybe his researcher, I'm guessing his researcher, gave him bad information. Maybe that researcher double-sourced it, got the same dumb story. But now it's in his book. His name is on the jacket. He owns it. And so do we. Now, let me get to this next point, because for me, this is the one that is, I'm not going to say it's the strongest, but it's right up there. Words have the power to build or destroy. Um, the verse that I'm reading is Proverbs 18:21, and I'm reading it out of the message paraphrase. It said, words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. Um, some of us remember an older translation that said, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Now, here's the thing. I, I know many of you, but I don't know many of you very well. But if we were able to have a conversation at Starbucks, just sitting down having coffee, and you could be open with me and I could be open with you. I'm guessing that there is an area of pain in your life today, maybe even an area of failure. And I'm guessing in some of those instances, you could trace it back to something hurtful or hateful someone said to you. You're fat, you're stupid, you're lazy, you're dumb, you don't work. You're ugly. I mean, I don't know what that is, but death is in the power of the tongue. And every day people say hurtful things that bring death. But I'm also guessing that if I talk to you, that for many of us there's an area of success or an area of beauty in our lives, an area of of self-worth or fulfillment that goes back to someone saying something to us, that someone who spoke life into us. For many of us, it's a mom or a dad or a grandparent. Oftentimes, it's a teacher or a coach, but just someone said something to you that spoke life. I'm sure I've told this story many times, but it's so personal for me that I I love telling the story. Uh, When I grew up, I'm in one of the two median years of the baby boom, so consequently, all the schools that I was in in Fort Worth were way too small. Buildings were way too small for us because... Well, demographically, baby boomers are like the pig and the python, and they didn't start building the schools bigger until after Gen X came along. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. But I always went to schools in Fort Worth that were huge, way oversized. So consequently, for the, for the most part, I was in school, I, you were a number. I went to a high school with 4,000 students. I went to a middle school with 2,000 students. So you're just pretty much a number. But there was also something, also something interesting about the way I went to school. The Southern Baptist Convention has their largest seminary in Fort Worth. And it was, I lived on the southeast side, and it was always right down the street from where I went to school. And so often the teachers I had in elementary school um, and middle school, their husbands were doctoral students at Southwestern Seminary, and they were putting their husbands through their grad school. But anyway, this story goes back to when I was in the seventh grade. And I need to let you know I'm painfully, I was painfully shy. I guess I still am painfully shy. And I could never imagine myself standing in front of a crowd and definitely not making a speech. But at the end of the seventh grade, I had an experience that impacted me. I had gone to a, basically a fast food place, and I had a hard time getting out of my mouth that I wanted a hamburger and a Coke. I mean, the lady came to take my order, and I was struggling, stammering, and I was so embarrassed about how, how goofy it was not to be able to order a Coke and a hamburger. When I got back to my house, I got the information about the upcoming eighth grade. And I noticed that I was going to be able to, pull it, to select two electives in the eighth grade. And I already had picked one. And I noticed that on this list was a class called speech. I didn't know what speech was. I didn't know what they were going to do in the class. I just thought anybody who has a hard time ordering a hamburger and a Coke should take speech. 
So I get into the first day of class in the eighth grade, and the teacher's name was Mrs. Williams. Her husband was a doctoral student at Southwestern Seminary. But it was real quick for me to notice this. This lady was like, she didn't blow sunshine at anybody. I mean, she just, very matter of fact, and, and a little bit strict. So on the first day of class, she said, all of you are going to give a speech this week. Oh, my goodness, I almost transferred out of the class just on that. <laughs> Imagine this, we're in the eighth grade. She said, you're all going to write your life story and going to read your life story. How does an eighth grader write his life story? So I did. I wrote it. And I sat there and I held on to it during the first day because she asked for volunteers. Well, I'm definitely not volunteering. So a lot of kids got up and read their life story, and I was kind of like crumpling my speech, waiting for her to call on me. The next day, she asked for volunteers. There were volunteers, so I just sat through it. Third day, I knew there weren't enough students for me to get past that day. I was going to have to give my speech, and I was terrified. And by this point, I had so, being ADD, I had so crumpled my paper that it looked like it came out of the trash can. Finally, I think I was like one of the last kids to give a speech. And I stood up, and I read it, and I was terrified and nervous. When I got through, Mrs. Williams was quiet. She didn't say anything. She just looked at me. And then she said, Mark, you're good. That started a love affair with speech. Hey, our principal decided a couple weeks later that he thought maybe it'd be cool if the students did the announcements on the intercom. Guess who did the announcements all that year? Oh, by the way, that was before we discovered, our courts discovered that prayer and Bible was unconstitutional. This is in 1969 in public school in Texas. Every morning I read a Bible verse. I did the Easter presentation to three, to three assemblies and read the story of the resurrection. By the time I got to high school, I was in forensics all four years. I was in debate as one of the top-rated speakers in the state of Texas. I left the trophy case in my high school full of trophies. And you know what I do. But what really matters is last week when I spoke, gave the talk, not that I'm responsible for that, but 42 people accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I've tried so hard to find her through the years. She's probably in heaven. But I would love to tell her, do you have any idea what she started? You know what? If she had made fun of me, that had been it. I'd have gone back into my shell. If she'd have said, did you get that speech out of the trash? And she could have. I mean, if she talked the way some of us talk today that are looking for some kind of rant that will get us attention. She could have. She said, did you get that speech out of the trash? Or she could have made some comment about how nervous I clearly was. And I would have reverted back, right back into my shell. She could have spoken death or life. She spoke life into me. And it's still impacting me to this day. Now listen, guys. Life and death are in the power of the time. And what you say to the people that you love, what you say to the people that you impact is huge. You can either, you can either speak beauty or you can speak hate. You can speak fruit or you can speak poison. The text says it's your choice. Now let me go to another key concept. As you can see, this is all introduction. I haven't even got to the sermon yet. That would worry me if I was listening to you today. <laughs> Words can never be unsaid. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, the Bible says, careless words stab like a sword. Well, we wouldn't use sword anymore. We would say gun. I remember the first time that my dad had me fire a firearm. I was nine years old. I grew up in Fort Worth, as I shared with you, but my my grandfather had a big spread in South Texas, a little town called Burnett. And um, so he had several hundred acres. And so my dad took me out with a little single, single shot bolt action 22. 
and took me out, well out into the pasture. And for some reason, my mom was with us too, so there were three of us. We went out there, and Dad said, Mark, uh, you, you're going you're gonna to fire this gun today. And I was all excited about that because I back you got if you got to be a baby boomer, all the cowboy shows and stuff they all had guns and you know so I'm like whoa I'm gonna shoot a gun. And then my dad went into his cautionary training, and he said I've got two things to say to you that are more important than anything else. He said the first thing is and he showed me the little box of 22 long rifle cartridges on the end it said range one mile, and Dad said Mark, this bullet has the potential to go places that you cannot see with your eyes right now. And then he said, as he began to point out hard surfaces, there was like a concrete wellhead, there were other things that were very hard. He said, if you're a little bit off in sighting the gun, he said, that bullet could hit one of those hard surfaces and ricochet off and hit me or your mother or hit you. I want to tell you something. By the time I finally sighted that gun, you never saw a more serious nine-year-old in your life when I lined up the sights. The Bible tells us that careless words are like a stab sword. You can't unstab someone. You can't unshoot someone. That's what my dad was trying to tell me. He was saying, this bullet is going to go places you can't see, and if you are a little bit off, it can go sideways and it can hurt someone. When you and I speak, we need to understand that our words, like that bullet, are going to go further than we imagine. Our words are going to go places we can't see. If we say something to a kid or to a wife or to a husband or to a friend, or if we put something out there on the Internet, we have no idea how far and wide those words are going to go. But on top of that, if we don't aim right, if we're not careful, we can even be philosophically right or even factually right in what we say. But if we're a little bit off target, then like that bullet, it can ricochet and do damage. I'm going to tell a story now that is really hard for me to tell. And if I didn't care deeply about helping you, I would let this story go because it's sensitive. But I feel the need to tell it. Last summer, I was doing a series here. And if I recall, my theme was on being respectful versus disrespectful. And the night before had been the first night that Colin Kaepernick had not stood for the national anthem. And I thought about that as being disrespectful. And as I thought about it, I thought by contradistinction how respectful Dr. Martin Luther King had been as he had really made social change in the civil rights era. And so in that talk, I drew a distinction between Colin Kaepernick and Dr. King. Had I stopped there and aimed carefully, I would have been okay. But I crossed the line. I kind of got smart aleck about it. I said something like this. I said, you know, if I were Colin Kaepernick, I'd pay attention to my career. Well, we all know if you follow the NFL, Colin Kaepernick's been struggling. So that was, that was easy. It was easy to take that shot. You know, he, if he's got something to do, he, he should pay attention to his career. And I kind of ripped on him a little bit. Well, I went on to finish the sermon. And, and after that, I had two or three opportunities, thankfully, and they were unrelated to just visit with some young African Americans in our congregation. And they could not, they were, they were so sweet to me. They were so kind. And, and, and even though they were not connected with each other, they, they all said the same thing pretty much. They said, Mark, we love you, and we know you love everybody, and we know you meant well, but we just want you to know that 
to a young African-American, they may have heard that differently. A couple of weeks later, I was at a conference, a small conference of leaders, and I was having breakfast with a good friend. And he pastors a massive church in Southern California. He is African-American, and a lot of his church is African-American. Now, I want to tell you something before I tell you this. He's more conservative than I am, and his church loves law enforcement, and they celebrate law enforcement. Just telling you that for a reason. So I told him what I did, and I told him, I said, you know, I'm, I, I, didn't even, I didn't even think what I was talking about even went into that area because both of the people in my story were people of color. And I said, I, and I, honestly, between you and me, I expected him to affirm what I did because my intentions were right. And he said, Mark, he said, first of all, you and I are from another generation. And we know Dr. King's story. He said, a lot of younger people don't know as much about Dr. King. They know about him as a name, but they don't know about his story. Oh, I, I could understand that. And then he said, let me ask you a question. He said, do you have any teenage, do you have any sons? I said, yeah. He said, when you taught them to drive, did you have to tell them how to respond to law enforcement when they were stopped? I said, no, I, I don't remember doing that. He said, well, I did. He said, let me tell you something that happened. He said, I had, you know, a 17-year-old, he said, and you know how 17-year-olds are. He said, I warned him. I said, look, if you get pulled over, this is what you do, and don't ride four deep in a car. And I told him all those things, and, and so this pastor and his family, they live in a really, really nice suburb there in, in a major city in Southern California. And he said, sure enough, my 17-year-old was riding, he was driving, he was four deep in a car, and he said, they're on the way to prayer meeting. And got pulled over. And he said, my son called me on the phone after it was over, and he's freaking out. And he said, Dad, we got pulled over. And when I told the police officer who I was, he said, oh, if you're pastor's son, you're on your way to prayer meeting, no problem. I just want to make sure you weren't, I want to make sure everything was okay. And then he said this. He said, Mark, you spoke into a situation that was a lot more complex than you understood. And although you were right in your idea, you're just a little bit off on your target. And the bullet ricocheted. I didn't have any fun telling that story. But I'm just telling for all of us who feel like we know the answer and what should be said, there's stuff out there that's just more complicated than we realize. And if you be a little bit off, even though you may be functionally right in your point, it can ricochet. So remember this, words that are spoken can't be unspoken. Real quickly here, talk tells our future. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 3, the Bible says, He who guards his lips guards his life, but he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. See, the thing of it is, somebody who will talk without thinking will act before thinking. So consequently, if anyone could hear us talk candidly, chances are they could tell what our trajectory is and where we're headed. And so the Bible tells us talk tells our future. Okay, that's enough introduction because according to that clock, I have seven minutes and 50 seconds to bring the rest of the talk. So let's get into the sermon. But just, can we, can we not just take a deep breath and say, wow, talk is bigger than we thought. Talk is huge. So how do we learn to talk? Isn't that strange? Talk is one of the first things that we're able to do, and it's one of the last things that we master. In my mind, I think about a golf swing. You know, if you've never played golf, it looks like people are just hitting a ball with a stick. If you've ever studied the golf swing, you know that no matter how long you study the golf swing, you'll be doing it the rest of your life. 
And that's a lot like talk because even though it looks simple and it seems simple, talk is a lot more complicated. So how do we learn how to talk? Well, if Jesus is Lord of all, he's the king of talk. It's not Rush Limbaugh or Rachel Maddow. Jesus is the king of talk. And so consequently, we need to look into what he would have to say. I mean, first of all, people must have liked to listen to him talk because the Bible tells about probably at least 20,000 people coming out to hear him talk. <laughs> One day, the religious elite wanted to arrest Jesus. And so they sent soldiers out to put the cuffs on Jesus. And the Bible says when the temple guards went back to the chief priests, they didn't have Jesus in cuffs. They asked him, why didn't you bring him in? I mean, they had been sent out there to bust Jesus with the cuffs. And when they came back empty-handed, the, you know, the elite said, why, did, why didn't you bust the guy? And they said, nobody ever talked the way he talked. I mean, the guys who went out to arrest him, they just like, oh, we were mesmerized with him. In Luke chapter 4, the Bible tells us this. People, all the people were amazed by the beautiful words that came from his lips. So in our culture today, the question is, WWJT, what would Jesus tweet? Everybody seems to have Twitter today, right? I mean, this is getting to be a big story because it's not just sports people and Hollywood figures and ordinary people. Politicians are getting into the act. Leaders are getting into the act. And, and, and the world diplomacy now is being conducted by Twitter. Well, I'm not going to get into that. I don't get into politics. But my question is this. What would Jesus tweet? Well, I'm not sure exactly I know word for word what Jesus would tweet, but I get a real big clue from this. And this is going to tell us probably one of the biggest things that we can learn about talking. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says the word, that's Jesus, became flesh. That means God wore skin and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, here we go, full of grace and truth. Now, that's, those are those are strange, that's a strange combination because grace is giving someone what they don't deserve. Now think for a moment. When you talk, I've always believed this. Forgive me for breaking the sense. I believe when people see you coming who know you well, they either see a walking plus sign or a walking minus sign. It's like, oh my goodness. She's coming into my zone. I so need to see her. I need to hear from her. I don't care what you talk about. Just say something to me. Because there are people that they're just walking plus signs. They give grace. They make you feel like you've been added to. Do you know anybody like that? I don't know enough people like that. But they, they have grace. And then we have grace and truth. Now, the, the issue with truth is sometimes... Truth can be difficult and painful and uncomfortable. So the thing of it is, what I've discovered is that when I look on the internet and I read people's posts or I read what people write, I usually see people that are either like full of grace but no truth or then I read stuff that's full of truth but there's no grace. And you know what? Here's the thing. Whenever someone is confronted by being full of grace with no truth, here's what they'll say. They'll say things like, well, I just affirm, and I don't judge, and I'm just inclusive, and I just want people to feel good. And so that's how they'll defend themselves, grace but no truth. And when you talk to somebody who's truth but no grace, what are they going to say? You know already. I'm right. I don't care. I'm right. It's the right thing to say. I don't care what the impact is. They just need to hear the truth. Full of truth, but no grace. 
Now, here's what I want us all to understand. Grace without truth is like peddling poison. Peddling a poison that is colorless, odorless, and tasteless. The reason why I say that is oftentimes when you just tell someone something they want to hear, but you don't tell them the truth, they don't realize that it is poison because they already want to hear it. So remember this. Someone will say, well, I'm just full of grace. Well, if all I do is tell people what they want to hear, I'm full of something, but it ain't grace. (laughs) But if, on the other hand, I'm full of truth, but no grace. See, truth without grace is like a whip. And no matter how true it is, it just does hurt. So don't you find it significant that when Jesus came, he was full of grace and truth? Well, let's find a story because we want to see how this plays out. You know, Because right now, you could be sitting out there saying, Mark, you've really got me scratching my head now because I thought that I just need to be a person that, that experienced expressed grace and and affirmed everything. And I thought that was what God wanted me to do. And then some of you out there, and I know you because you're saying, well, Mark, listen, the truth is the truth is the truth. And God is a God of truth. And I just thought God wanted me to tell the truth. And now you're telling me that I'm supposed to like, what would it look like? Well, let me tell you a story. In the gospel of John chapter eight, there was some, this religious elite who had tried to arrest him earlier. Now they're trying to trick him and they do something horrible. They find a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. It's not like they, they said she did it or they caught her coming out of the house. They caught her in the act. She's married, the guy's married, they're both breaking their marriage vows. I'm kind of wondering why they didn't bring the man. Always strange, isn't it? Ladies, things have not changed in thousands of years, right? Double standard thing. Okay, here we go. That's not what this is about. I want to get to what Jesus said. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand. Isn't that something she's probably not dressed? They made her stand. They're not, they don't care about her. They don't care about good. They don't care about Jesus. They're just trying to rip Jesus. Okay? They, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. In other words, Jesus said, Hey, stone her. They'd say, Boy, you're some, boy, you're some gracious person. And if, on the other hand, he said, let her go, they would say, well, then you don't care anything about truth. So they thought they had him either way. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I don't know what he wrote. You don't know what he wrote. Don't come tell me after service. I know that. (laughs) Nobody knows what he wrote. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if anyone anyone of you is without sin, you throw the first rock. Knock yourself out. He didn't say that. I just put that in there. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. You want to see grace and truth? Ready? Take a deep breath. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave this life of sin. I want to talk to those of you, grace but no truth. You're like, I don't think he should have told her that it was sin. Who are we to judge? We need to be inclusive and loving. And we all make mistakes. Hey, listen, 
leaving the milk out overnight is a mistake. Adultery is a sin. Boy, we're, a lot of times we call ourselves mistakers when really we're sinners. Well, I just don't think Jesus should have said that adultery is sin because, you know, you don't really know. No, no, adultery is sin. It's sin against God. It's a grievous sin. But then I'm talking to some of you that's like, well, you know what, Ben, just truth, 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 truth. That woman cheated on her husband, and she was with a man who cheated on her, and I think Jesus should have just reamed her out because, after all, she was guilty of an awful sin, and he should have told her. Did you hear what Jesus said? I don't condemn you, but what you're doing is wrong. and Don't do it anymore. Grace and truth. Grace without truth is peddling poison. You know, here's the thing. In our culture today, we're really big on expressing affirmation. Now, affirming the person is one thing, but affirming the conduct and equating that is a tragic mistake. It's an, here's the thing. If you can't call sin what God calls sin, you may be making a cosmically eternal mistake. Oftentimes in our world today, we look at a person who's engaged in something that God calls sin, and our sympathy is expressed for them as well. We should express sympathy because we're all sinners, and it's all sad when, when we sin. But the thing about it is, a lot of times we're not thinking about the generations that are going to come after that are being affected by some of the decisions that we're making today. We need to have a little sympathy for them. Let me give you an example. Um, today, we're so accustomed to no-fault divorce. We, most of you don't realize that before 1966, I think it was, maybe 69, if you wanted to get a divorce, you had to go into court and you had to show cause. And so there was a concern that maybe people that were having to go through a divorce were having to experience an awful lot of pain by airing their dirty laundry in public. <clears throat> and so the idea of no-fault divorce became big. And Ronald Reagan was the first governor of California to sign no-fault divorce into law. And, and, and see, that's, a lot of you didn't know that that's as recent as, I think, 1969 or 1970. Now, you know what? I think those people that made that law, I think they had good intentions because no doubt it was painful for people to have to come into court and, and air their dirty laundry. But what they weren't thinking about is they weren't thinking about all the pain of future generations. Because you know what? I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people who were innocent victims in a divorce, and yet they go into the courtroom on an equal level with the perpetrator. And what about the kids who don't get a vote? And because divorce was made easier, people probably didn't pursue didn't pursue help. Now, that's, that's a complicated issue, and, and it's, it's for another day. But my, my point is, I think you get my point. My point is this. All the sympathy was for the people that are engaged in that process, which we fully understand. But there was no sympathy exercised for all the, all the hundreds and thousands and millions of, of innocent victims and children who were going to be affected by a culture in which divorce is way too easy. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Truth and grace. What would Jesus tweet? I don't know for sure, but it'd be the truth, but it'd be gracious. I read a story that kind of gives me a modern slant on how this would, how this would work. There was a, a kid in the California high school. He was a senior. And his dad, like, like a lot of dads, he enjoyed kind of living through their kids and 
And his dad was in high hopes he could go to an Ivy League school, get in one of the best universities. And the kid fell to class. And the dad was down there at, at the end of the day to rage at the teacher who had failed his son. And he screamed and yelled at her and said, you got to change my, my son's grade. You're going to mess up his life and mess up his future and look at the harm that you've done to him. And I insist right now that you change this grade. And she said, sir, I can't do that. We have, we have standards in the class, and everybody in the class is held to the same standards. And I'm sorry, your son failed the class, and I can't change the grade. At that point, the father went down to the principal's office, and he began to scream at the principal, telling the principal, you need to get rid of that idiot teacher who won't change the grade. She's stubborn, and my kid, she's messing up his future. And the principal said, I've already looked into this, and she gave your son an accurate grade, and I'm not going to fire her for doing the right thing. And beyond that, I'm not going to change the grade. At that point, the father decided to ramp this thing up and go to the school board, and in front of meetings, he would rant against this principal that he needed to lose his job. And in the worst of one of these rants, the principal looked at the father, and he said something that disarmed the whole situation. As the father was ranting and accusing this principal of everything and demanding that he be fired, the, dad, the principal looked at the dad and said, Sir, I can see that you love your son very much. And at that point, the man burst into tears. I'm not changing the grade, but I can see that you love your son very much. Grace and truth. Talk is big. Grace and truth. Do you realize that when you look at a cross, you're looking at grace and truth? When you look at Jesus hanging on the cross, what that tells us is that your sin is really bad. Your sin, my sin, is so bad that it deserves that somebody hang on a cross and die. On the other hand, you have Jesus with his arms outstretched hanging on your cross, dying for you so that God could wipe all your sins away and forgive you and adopt you as his daughter, as his son. You see, grace and truth, truth that you're a sinner, grace that Jesus paid for your sin. Man, I love Jesus, don't you? Man, he's so awesome. I know we're into overtime, but I don't want to leave without giving you an opportunity to come to the person who offers you his truth. And so consequently, when, when we listen to him, we don't have a sense that he's just blowing sunshine at us. We know he's telling truth, but also offers us grace and forgiveness and restoration. I'm going to ask you if you want to just pray a prayer with me. This is a prayer that calls out to God, and you can decide. You can, I'll pray it slowly, and you can decide if you want to hear it and say these words to God. Just bow your heads with me, please. Dear God... I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died for my sin. The truth is I'm a sinner, but grace is that I can be forgiven. I come today asking for that grace. I believe Jesus rose from the grave. I want my life to be committed to him. Thank you for loving me in Jesus' name. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer, you may not know what happened, but you just made a big decision. I want to offer you something, a gift. In South Auditorium and North Auditorium, outside your auditorium, there's an area called Guest Services. South Auditorium is right out there. If you'll just go and say, I prayed with Mark, they will give you the same Bible I preach from, a DVD, and a book I wrote to help you get started. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next weekend.